It's Thursday, October 7th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Welcome back to Radio Free Oz. We in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. The laughter you hear comes from my co-host, David Osmond. What's up, David? Well, we're back. You know, it's like it's like a Johnny, you know. Well, we're back. Like there was like there was an interval between then and now and 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 us and them. You know what I mean? It's very yeah, well, yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, we are back. We haven't been here in the Blue U studios for a few days. No. For all the time shift and all that. Fact is we, we are in some sort of a serial universe. At least I had mine this morning. So uh, <laughs> okay. yeah. All right, you win. What you got? What what have I got? Well, you know, just uh, filtering through the New York Times, there was a great page. Yep. It had California reduces its penalty for marijuana with a, a sort of tight-lipped Governor Schwarzenegger. And and how? What have they done? How? Well, I, you know, yeah. I mean, it's they just they don't care. I mean, come on, they haven't got the resources to. You know, there's more money out there to plant marijuana than there is to keep the parks open. Right. Uh, but uh, but the big story was the movement of the moment. Is the headline looks to long ago texts. So what? this was well. Th- these are the books apparently that the Tea Partiers are reading. These are the these are these are the texts. Okay, and they they have some quotes from these texts. Uh, yeah. uh, long ago texts. Here's one of them. As long ago as 1981. Wow. Uh, the a book called "The Five Thousand Year Leap" by W. Cleon Skousen. Skousen. Right. What has Cleon got to Cleon. say? Cleon. What Cleon has to say, under no circumstances is the federal government to become involved in public welfare. The founders felt it would corrupt the government and also the poor. No constitutional authority exists for the federal government to participate in charity or welfare. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? <laughs> turns out this guy, turns out that W. Clausen here, uh, is a, a self-published in 1981 by, and I'm quoting for um, the Times, uh, a, an anti-communist uh, crusader shunned by his fellow Mormons for his more controversial positions, including a hearty defense of the John Birch Society. So the, the Tea Party is hearkening back to the anti-communism of a sort, or certainly to the John Birch Society super radical thing. Okay, so, yeah, and so the, the founders, of course, yeah. if you talk to them about unemployment insurance, they'd have had a, definitely a negative opinion. If you've talked to them about TARP, all of these various things, they'd have said no, no TARP. They wouldn't uh, have wanted to get rid of their slaves either. No, So that's no, right. it's a money-losing proposition. Well, what, here's the, what, here's else the other are, one. what else are the backers Because this uh, one is at? really old. It's called The Law. 1850. Mm. Oh, you want to get an original copy of this one? It's by Frédéric Bastiat. Uh-huh. It, it is not considered sufficient that the law should be just. It must be th- philanthropic. It is demanded that the law should directly extend welfare, education, and morality throughout the nation. This is the seductive lure of socialism. Oh, so an 1850 anti-socialist. Yeah, oh, those yeah, French. Yeah. yeah, and both of these uh, are, you know, we, we talk about the extent of uh, the Society for a Compassion-Free America. I understand they're opening a, you know, a think tank now. For, for a compassion-free uh, compassion America. America. And these must, these are must be texts so over there. 
because uh, at tea time, you know, when they're sitting around and yeah, dipping their bags and trying to figure out what is what. Anything else, or is that basically it? The well, law well, and the five thousand year leap. It was just really strange that it was on the same page with Governor Schwarzenegger, and the other headline is official to face hearing over blog attacks. Oh <laughs> yeah, serious blog attack. Politico tells us that Interior Secretary Ken Salazar is standing his ground amid calls from Gulf state lawmakers and industry to immediately end the deep water oil drilling ban. Salazar unveiled a pair of new rules for offshore drillers yesterday and indicated he needs proof industry has reduced the risk of another BP-like oil spill before he delivers a final verdict. We will... Only lift the moratorium when I, as Secretary of the Interior, am comfortable that we have significantly reduced those risks, he said at a speech at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. The rules go into effect immediately and create tough new standards for the equipment and technology used in offshore drilling, including requiring the independent certification of a well's blowout preventer. Of course, if we'd have had that before, we wouldn't have all that toxic stuff in the Gulf, but hey... Better late than never, I wonder. They also include a new workplace safety standards set aimed at reducing human and organization errors, such as the one believed to have played a role in the Deepwater Horizon rig explosion. We are raising the bar for safety, oversight, and environmental protection at every state of the development and drilling process, Salazar said. Salazar suggested today that additional rules were on the way in the coming weeks and months, making it unclear how many steps remain before the deep water ban is lifted. How about not lifting it at all? How about we just find some other way to drive our Hummers? The oil and gas industry needs to expect a dynamic regulatory environment, Salazar said. The moratorium expires at the end of November, but Salazar and other administration officials have suggested they hope to lift it sooner, especially given the uproar from Gulf state lawmakers about job losses due to the ban. But Salazar took a hard line on the political maneuvering surrounding the moratorium. We will lift it at our own time. And when we're ready, and not based on political pressure from anyone, Salazar told the newspaper. Michael Bromwich, director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, Regulation and Enforcement, told the Obama administration's oil spill commission things won't immediately return to normal. Even when the moratorium is lifted, you're not going to see drilling come on the next day or the next week, said Bromwich. It's going to take some time, and I'd just be guessing that it will take many, many weeks. William Riley, co-chairman of the Oil Spill Commission, agreed. It'll be a de facto moratorium going forward, said Riley, the former Environmental Protection Agency administrator under President George H.W. Bush. This is the question and concern many people in the Gulf are beginning to raise with us and that industry itself has, Riley added. The combination of new regulations and the changes in some of the requirements, particularly the equipment requirements, the availability of equipment even, might delay resumption of drilling beyond the moratorium lifting itself. It can't be too long for me. This one comes out of the Daily Beast, and that's appropriate because it's a story about beasts. U.S. government medical researchers intentionally infected hundreds of people in Guatemala, including institutionalized mental patients with gonorrhea and syphilis, without their knowledge or permission more than 60 years ago. 
Many of those infected were encouraged to pass the infection on to others as part of the study. About one-third of those who were infected never got adequate treatment. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius are expected to offer extensive apologies for actions taken by the U.S. Public Health Service. The apology will be to Guatemala and Hispanic residents of the United States, according to officials. The episode raises inevitable comparisons to the infamous Tuskegee experiment, the Alabama study, where hundreds of African-American men were told they were being treated for syphilis, but in fact were denied treatment. The U.S. government study lasted from 1932 until press reports revealed it in 1972. The Guatemala experiments, which were conducted between 1946 and 1948, never provided any useful information and the records were hidden. I think we probably took our clue from the Nazi doctors that we brought over after the war. Hmm, sounds like a good idea. Torture people and learn nothing. They were discovered by Susan Reverby, a professor of women's studies at Wellesley College, and was posted on her website. According to Reverby's report, the Guatemalan project was co-sponsored by the U.S. Public Health Service, the NIH, the Pan American Health Sanitary Bureau, now the Pan American Health Organization, and the Guatemalan government. The experiments involved 696 subjects, male prisoners and female patients, in the National Mental Health Hospital. The researchers were trying to determine whether the antibiotic penicillin could prevent early syphilis infection, not just cure it, Reverby writes. After the subjects were infected with the syphilis bacteria uh, through visits with prostitutes who had the disease and direct inoculations, Reverby notes that it is unclear whether they were later cured or given proper treatment. My, oh my, what can you say? I mean... We've been beasts for decades. It's time that we cleaned house. Time for the comedy calendar. And since this is uh, a show that leads into the weekend, you got to give us Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. David. Oh, boy. That's yeah. a lot to accomplish. Well, um, let's see. Did I mention that this was Shopping Cart Safety Awareness Week? We, we had that already. Yes. Uh -huh. we, we, well, this is I'll Get Back to You Day. Is that right? <laughs> well, it is now. It's a, yeah. There just wasn't any. Nobody was born on the uh, on this on the seventh on the seventh. Who was funny? Well, who was funny? Yeah, I mean, we got it. It's sort of a bottom line there. Okay, good. I what, mean, some people were died funny. You there know, you, you go. Put what, those in. Okay. what about the eighth? All right, Friday. It's Chevy Chase. Ah, Chevy Chase, nineteen forty-three. Uh, a wonderful quote from People magazine once called him. Terminally tiresome. <laughs> I don't think that's true. What a terrible review. Poor yeah. guy. Uh, uh, Saturday, uh, um, the 9th. The 9th is John, John Lennon's, Lennon's birthday. And my father's birthday. And your father. Well, that's a double thing to remember. And it's 1940, so that's 60, that's 70, yeah. right? 70 of, of um, here's a John Lennon quote for you. Uh, we were the sons of the goon show. We were of an age. We were the extension of that rebellion in a way. Yeah, sons of the goon show. So is Fireside Theater to yeah, a degree. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I worked with Spike Miller of the goon show, and I didn't realize he was, Lennon was born in 1940. So he was born within my year. I mean, I was born in November of 39, and he was born in October of 40. So 
We're the same age. It was that uh, it was that generation, and it was the, an extension of that rebellion, sure, it's of the out. Goon Show. And if you don't know what the Goon Show is, go grab some off the web right now. Um, okay, uh, finally, Sunday, let's all uh, uh, send up a prayer for, uh, let's see, I am a crook day. Uh, it's the, uh, that's the resignation of vice President Agnew I asked. back in 1973. Hounded by the nattering nabobs, <laughs> nabobs <laughs> of negativity. That's right. And it's also Pet Your Angora Day, celebrating the birthday of Ed Wood Jr., the, the maker of Plan 9 from Outer Space, who notoriously <clears throat> wore an Angora sweater, which he petted all the time. The, <sighs> there was a movie of him, you know. You <sighs> can see it. How sweet. You can see him pet his Angora. Friends in California tell me they watched the Meg Whitman-Jerry Brown debate a couple days ago and said he was really loose and cool and she was really uptight and, and kind of fierce. Well, the husband of Meg Whitman, California Republican nominee for governor, said it was possible. He saw a 2003 letter that questioned his housekeeper's social security number, but he insisted it did not make him suspect she was an undocumented worker. This is someone who had been working with a family for a long, long time. Dr. Griffith Harsha's acknowledgement came several hours after he stood next to Whitman as she told reporters neither of them saw the letter. The reversal followed lawyer Gloria Allrad's release of a letter with a note to the housekeeper, which she said was Harsha's handwriting. Allred called it the smoking gun or smoking document that showed the couple knew their housekeeper for nine years, Nikki Diaz-Santillian, was working illegally in the United States. While I honestly do not recall receiving this letter as it was uh, uh, sent to uh, me seven years ago, I can say it is possible that I would have scratched a follow-up note on a letter like this, Harsh said in a statement received last Thursday. Nikki, please check this, thanks, is scribbled at the bottom of the letter addressed to Whitman and her husband. Well, well, well. Santillian kept the letter after Harsh gave it to her, and the information requested by the Social Security Administration was not provided, Allred said. Since we believed her to be legal, I would have had no reason to suspect that she would not have filled it in and done what was needed to secure her benefits, Harsh said. Mm-hmm. Meg Whitman supports tough crackdowns on employers who hire illegal immigrants, requiring employers pay a fine and uh, have their uh, business licenses suspended for 10 days for first-time offenses, with steeper fines and penalties for repeat offenders. I wonder if this would put her out of business. I wonder if she has to go back and give back all the hundreds of millions of dollars she made on eBay. I don't know. Whitman is currently neck and neck in the polls with Attorney General Jerry Brown, the Democratic nominee. I understand that after the debate. She's now down by five. Whitman told reporters she would be willing to take a polygraph test, okay, if it comes to that, to to prove that she was really stunned to learn just last year that Santillian was an undocumented worker. Strap her up. Put the cans on her. The allegations became public Wednesday when Allred held a news conference with Santillian to say the former housekeeper was exploited disrespected, humiliated, and emotionally and financially abused by the former eBay CEO. Oh, so I guess that's what California has in store if Meg makes the cut. This model says the bra with straps tied to plastic pots and a water hose with seedlings acting as a belt adds a contemporary touch. From Time Magazine. 
It's no secret that for all its full-throated protests, the Pakistani government tolerates CIA drone attacks against Afghan insurgents and al-Qaeda targets based on its side of the border. But NATO helicopter attacks are another matter, especially when Pakistani troops die, as was the case last week when a coalition strike mistakenly killed three Pakistani soldiers. Pakistan's response? The summary closure of a vital supply line for U.S. and NATO forces. It could scarcely come at a worse time in the nine-year war. Nine years. With more troops on the ground than ever before, and clearing operations at full tilt across much of the southern battle zone, the move threatens to complicate the inflow of critical resources needed to keep the military machine humming, and convoys, (laughs) idled by the bottlenecks, have become highly vulnerable to Taliban attack. It's also a sharp reminder of a fickle partnership whose strategic interests clash in the Afghan theater. Yeah, Pakistan's not worried about Afghanistan. They're not even that worried about al-Qaeda. They're worried about India, and we don't really get that. Washington and Islamabad are nominally united in their fight against Islamic militants in Pakistan and Afghanistan. After much foot-dragging, Pakistan in the past year has waged an aggressive campaign against a homegrown insurgency that has spilled from its tribal areas into the big cities, where suicide bombings and targeted killings have surged. Hey, there are Taliban, or insurgents, or militants, I don't know what you want to call them, the, uh, you know, graduates of the, the local madras in control of territory within 60 kilometers of Islamabad. It's a serious situation. Nevertheless, critics say the Pakistani army has been reluctant to move against militant groups like the Afghan Taliban and the allied Haqqani network, which have bases in Pakistan, but are focused on Afghanistan because they want to preserve the Afghan groups as proxies once the U.S. withdraws from that country. And withdraw, indeed, we will. As popular support in the U.S. for the fighting dwindles, the Obama administration has been hard-pressed to show compelling results ahead of the year-end White House war review. In the face of that, the Pentagon has chosen to ramp up drone attacks in Pakistan. Over the past five weeks, more than 20 have taken place. Now, let's get this strategy. We can't win it with boots on the ground. We're losing it with boots on the ground, so we're going to win it with drones in the air? I don't think so. In recent days, this push escalated with a series of helicopter strikes on militant hideouts, and then a fatal mistake. NATO claims the chopper that killed the Pakistani soldiers received ground fire upon entering Pakistani airspace and shot back in defense, while Islamabad insists that the aircraft shouldn't have been there in the first place. An apology has been made and an investigation launched. The question now is, what's next? I'll tell you what's next. More trouble. U.S. officials are hustling behind the scenes to avoid a meltdown with Pakistan that could seriously hamstring the counterinsurgency effort. Some 80% of the NATO's non-lethal supplies are transported over Pakistan territory, entering Afghanistan through two border posts. The impasse has stranded hundreds of trucks bearing critical fuel, military vehicles, and food for more than the 150,000 international forces, leaving the vehicles vulnerable to sabotage. Got 150,000 people there being serviced on the ground through two ports, both of which have been stopped because we helicoptered three Pakistani soldiers when we shouldn't have been there in the first place. And I love the fact we call it NATO helicopters. Uh Uh-huh. A day after the government's decision, dozens of fuel tankers were set ablaze by unidentified militants. On Monday of this week, another score of NATO tankers were set ablaze by Molotov cocktails near Islamabad, apparently by Taliban forces. And if not by Taliban, by somebody else. 
The continued onslaught of American drone attacks could pose a problem, you think? On Saturday, two more strikes reportedly killed eight militants in separate sites in North Waziristan, the insurgent-laden tribal region the Pakistani military has opt to leave alone. Sounds kind of like a a tourist brochure. Visit Waziristan. It's insurgent-laden. I mean, how do you tell from the drone strike if that buzzard is an insurgent or just somebody living their poverty-stricken life? While Pakistan has provided intelligence uh in support of drone strikes, the popular backlash has been consistently fierce, as the attacks are seen as an affront to national pride, deepening already strong anti-American currents across the country. We don't belong in Pakistan. We won't be able to stay there. It's much, much different than the Afghanistan situation where there is no real government. There's Kabul being held by, you know, Karzai. And then there's Kandahar being held by the Taliban. And there's somebody else is up in the north. Pakistan has a central government in Islamabad, basically run by the army and the intelligence service. And they're not about to give over to the United States. And... They have the bomb. I have another caller on the Skype line. Peter, this is Pastor Go to Hell. Well, hello, Pastor. I haven't heard from you for a while. Maybe not, but that doesn't mean I haven't been counting. Well, counting what? You think I, I, I care that you used 56,975,457 letters on yesterday's show, huh? You think I care? I, I did. Yes, you did. You questioning my statistics? I really have no idea. I don't know. But I do. You think I don't know that 56,975,457 is the product of three consecutive primes? It is? Uh Uh-huh. And I guess you don't know that when I input those primes into my secret Bible decoder ring, it spells Satan rocks. It does? <laughs> of course, you have to pretend not to know about all the secret messages you transmitting. I, I am? Come on, come on. You're working for the man, same as me. Because <laughs> you're working for the other man. I suppose from your perspective, so am I. Well, th- thanks for your call, Pastor. Don't you patronize me, Pete. I got the numbers and numbers never lie. I might, but the numbers never do. <laughs> These are confusing times, no doubt. In a little over a year, we have seen our economy tank, our empire implode, and our culture unravel. Whether we've entered a bona fide Big D depression or are just double-dipping doesn't change the fact that half the states are bankrupt, real unemployment is nearly double what the government will admit, and the specter of homelessness stalks millions of Americans who, until recently, were sleepwalking through the American dream. We can't pump up the war machine because we lost the handle chasing vandals in and out of the Middle East, and the loyal opposition in Congress is loyal only to their simple-minded scheme of bringing down the government so they can root around for goodies in the ashes. These are the times that try men's souls, and we have been tried and found wanting on at least one count of spineless stupidity. Both ends of the political spectrum have abjured any responsibility for the mess we're in and shifted the explanation to a series of self-serving conspiracy theories, all starring Barack Hussein Obama. The Tea Party version has been grabbing column inches for months. Obama is a dedicated, anti-colonial, Kenyan anchor baby sent here to take away our guns, our hummers, and our right to die from lack of proper health care. 
The rants from the disgruntled left have the look of legitimate research, but in the end are just as far-fetched. My favorite is the screed that ties Obama's father and the rest of his family to a variety of CIA plots against good guy African leaders, and then reveals the military-industrial cabal behind Barack's rise to the presidency. All that's missing are the Illuminati, the Elders of Zion, and the Spear of Longinus. Obama's not the Manchurian candidate. He's a remarkable person trying to clean up a White House befouled with eight years of sedition and greed. He got the Nobel Prize just for being elected. That's a measure of the doo-doo left behind by W and the horse he rode out on. Take another look at TARP. It worked. Study the stimulus bill. It's a transforming vision. And come November 2nd, get off your disgruntled ass and do the right thing. Bob, I'm really glad you could join me here in the Wiggle. It's, it's wonderful to be here. And you know I love this place because the ice in my drink never melts. Isn't that something? <laughs> I, I don't know it's how they ice do it. Nine. Oh. It's Ice Nine, they, yeah. because it's Washington D.C., and this is you know this is a special place. So we, we've just been on a special meeting with the president, you know, when he decided to, to send thirty thousand troops to some stand. I, I don't I, know. One of those painful stands they got there, you know. This I, one was I don't remember. I said, Mr. President, meet us in the wiggle room, and he said, I don't, I don't need that much wiggle room. I, I said, said, Well, we're enablers, Mr. President. That's right. We, we can help you out. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, we one of us can stand on one side, the other enabler on the other. We can enable you. Uh, we're right uh, over the brink if we want to, you know. And we're away. Out. Uh, one of the things you kept saying, he was crying. I to see a president cry. Well, I was Colonel Wibble in there. Oh, well, yeah. And, 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 and Petraeus, General Petraeus. No, well, he's General Petraeus. Uh, specifically, he's an asshole. Oh, yeah, right. right. But generally, he's just, generally just, just, just Petraeus. Uh, well, I, I, I said to the president, I said, if you want a way out, we'll give you you did. And yeah, I did. What did what did he say? He I don't says, remember. There's no way out. Says, no there's way no out. winning. There's no losing. Oh, there's just gosh. there's just uh, meeting expectations. Meeting, meeting, meeting expectations. Can I have some of that do, ice now? Well, you take some of this ice because it's it's uh, crowding my drink, and I what I really wanted. We should talk a little bit about this crisis in in global wobble, yeah. Bill, because I'm worried it's going to knock me off the table. <laughs> <laughs> this music makes me sick. This is about my man, Joe Biden. I love that man. It's from Politico. Vice President Joe Biden yesterday again promised supporters that Democrats would keep control of both houses of Congress as he campaigned in Omaha for State Senator Tom White, who's challenging Representative Lee Terry. We're going to pick up some House seats nobody expected us to get, just like this one here in Nebraska, said Biden, who also repeated his now familiar refrain that former President George W. Bush was to blame for the poor economy. I think he's right. He said the Obama administration was turning things around. The economy has grown four successive quarters. Well, I don't know, Joe. We'll talk about that later. Biden told the crowd of about 285 supporters that Terry supported Bush through years of deficit spending and voted to put two wars on your credit cards. I like that. Mm -hmm, Yeah. If Lee had his way, we'd be going right back to where we were before we got into this mess, Biden said. 
Biden arrived after 45 minutes late for the afternoon fundraiser, saying he had to complete a phone conversation with Egyptian President Hosni Murabek that had been cut off while in flight. I know, you hear that excuse a lot, the old Murabek excuse, Joe uh, Biden. Yeah, yeah. I love him. Uh, that's great, that's great. Yeah, I was talking to the Egyptian presidency, and I, I can't tell you what it was about. See, and but then it I lost r- the connection, because, uh, you know, Air long. Force, it's only Air Force Two. Yeah, yeah, they don't have uh, they don't have the machinery that uh, the Air Force One has. I just love this guy, man. And uh, if he's right, if we do keep control, which is an outside chance, he's going to be one big hero. It seems like he's a real guy. Yeah. Seems like he's a real guy. I mean, the president's a real guy, but he's just too damn smart. <laughs>
This one comes off of NBC's first read. They call it Whitman's blame game. It's all about that housekeeper who came out of nowhere. Anyone who follows politics or works in the business knows that a large part is dealing with the unexpected, a crisis, scandal, controversy, whatever. And in many cases, how a candidate deals with the unexpected tells a lot about their ability to handle the job itself. But in her first foray into politics and dealing with her first real crisis over her ex-housekeeper's immigration status, Meg Whitman has decided to blame her opponent for her current woes. During last week's Univision debate, Whitman turned to Democratic opponent Jerry Brown and said he should be ashamed of himself for sacrificing Nikki Diaz on the altar of your political ambitions. Block that metaphor. That's according to the New York Times. Brown responded, don't run for governor if you can't stand up on your own two feet and say, hey, I made a mistake. Which is indeed what she did. It now, it, we've now determined, thanks to Gloria Allred and the smoking letter, that Meg's husband knew all about the fact that Nikki Diaz had no social security number, etc. Plus, Nikki is saying they abused her and used, used the, her illegal status to their advantage. I'm not sure if that's true. That's only alleged. But Meg Whitman gets all flustered and turns around and accuses Jerry Brown of manipulating the situation. Come on, Meg, grow up. Josh Marshall runs Talking Points Memo, and this is from his blog. A weird Newsweek poll came out at the end of last week that either means nothing or everything, and most likely something in between, which is a weird volatility that is challenging pollsters' abilities to tell us just what's coming on November 2nd. The congressional generic shows a five-point spread for the Democrats, 48% to 43%. That's a strong number for the Dems. The reported poll was for registered voters, but they also applied a filter for what they call definite voters. Now, definite voters isn't a term of art pollsters usually use, but on the face of it, it sounds like a really rigorous, likely voter screen. Because presumably people who are definitely going to vote are extremely likely. In any case, likely voter screens almost always lean at least a bit Republican. That's in every cycle, and it's particularly the case in this cycle. But in this case, Newsweek's definite voters were even more Dem-leaning than the registered voters. Among the definite voters, the spread was Dems 50 to the GOP 42. Here's another new congressional generic just out today. This one from Rasmussen, which is, by the way, a very conservative and often Republican-leaning poll, and it shows a three-point spread for the GOP, GOP 45, Dems 42. But the context is important. Last week, Rasmussen had a six-point margin, and for most of the summer, their number has hovered around 10 points or higher in the GOP's favor. In other words, going by their past averages, Friday's Newsweek poll and today's from Rasmussen are pretty consistent. Is it possible are, are people waking up? Are they deciding to vote on issues instead of anger or too much fast food or too little sleep or too many faked orgasms? We'll hear about that later. Whatever it is that's getting people up and about, it seems they're beginning to see that the situation as it stands is not because of the not-me president and not because of runaway spending. It's because we're in a serious economic downturn 
It started years and years ago. The Republican Party has no plans to change it. In fact, all they want to do is make it worse. So maybe people are finally figuring out what is real. Maybe they'll do it just in time. If you want to stay on top of what's happening with Radio Free Oz or even want to contribute to the show, we have a brand new way for you to do that. Just go to www.twitter.com slash oznetwork and click on the follow button. Then stand by for further instructions. Kind of sounds like Jack Armstrong. Stand by for further instructions. From the Talking Points Memo. Pakistan's former military ruler Pervez Musharraf said yesterday he will return to lead a new political party to tackle corruption, revive the sluggish economy, and step up the fight against Islamist militants. Now, this is the general who who got in for during a coup a while ago, and everybody says, oh, he's a military dictator. Well, I'll tell you one thing he is, he's a secularist, and that's exactly what Pakistan needs right now. Musharraf, who quit office in 2008 to avoid impeachment charges, said he feared the nuclear-armed country could break up without a change of political leadership. When there is a dysfunctional government and the nation is going down and the economy is going down, there is a pressure on the military from the people, he told BBC Radio. There is a sense of despondency spreading in Pakistan. We cannot allow Pakistan to disintegrate. So who is the savior? The army can do it. Nobody else can do it. Now, to Americans, that, that's a terrible uh, nostrum. Oh, uh, things are bad. Let's call in the army. But in Pakistan right now, unless the army is thoroughly infiltrated with Islamists, it may be the only way they have to go. <laughs> of course, we could just take the place over since we have boots on the ground there already and we're attacking them with drones and and killing people from helicopters. Maybe it's just a moot issue. And Pervez doesn't have to worry about leaving London and coming back and saving his country because it won't be there anymore. Back from the shadows again Out where an engine's your friend where the vegetables are green and you can pee into the stream. Right on, right on. Yes, we're back from the shadows again. This is part of my harp on tarp and my paean to the stimulus. This from Time Magazine. People of good faith can disagree over whether President Obama's $787 billion stimulus package is creating enough jobs, piling on too much debt, or helping the country in the long run. But it's about time to retire one set of critiques of the stimulus, that it would be riddled with fraud, hamstrung by delays, and crippled by cost overruns. So far, while the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act is clearly not a political success, it is just as clearly a managerial success, on schedule, under budget, and according to independent investigators, remarkably free of fraud. I hope you're here in this, America. Last week, the administration met its self-imposed deadline of spending 70% of the Recovery Act, or $551 billion bucks, by the end of the fiscal year. Almost all of the unspent stimulus money is already committed to specific projects, except for a few longer-range initiatives like high-speed rail and electronic health records. 
and the completed work has cost less than expected, so the savings have financed over 3,000 additional projects, from airport improvements in Atlanta to new child care centers at military bases in Louisiana, North Carolina, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. From a new five-lane road in Jacksonville to a $14.5 million transformation of World War II ammunition factory into an eco-friendly government building in St. Louis. By the way, isn't Senator Coburn from Oklahoma the guy that hates the stimulus? I wonder if he minds if there's some some new child care centers on the military bases in Oklahoma. Probably hates child care too. Probably hates children. Meanwhile, Earl Devaney, the hard-nosed watchdog leading the Independent Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board. Boy, there's a mouthful. Hi, honey. Back home from another long day at the Independent Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board. Will you just sit down and have one of these gray goose martinis, you stud? Well, he recently testified to Congress that investigators simply haven't seen the kind of fraud that we would have imagined as professional law enforcement. Before the stimulus passed, experts predicted the government would lose 5 to 7% of it to fraud. Today, out of over 190,000 contracts, grants, and loans, less than 0.2% are under investigation. Of course, if Suntan Bamer and his boys took over the House, they'll investigate everything. The board is using newfangled computer algorithms that can track suspicious spending patterns before there's a complaint. The inspectors general of every major agency are bird-dogging the stimulus as well. Devaney likes to say that if you really want to steal, you'd be crazy to steal from the Recovery Act. It's way too transparent. With every dollar traceable at www.recovery.gov, and there are too many eyes on it. In the words of Vice President Joe Biden, I like the words of Vice President Joe Biden, particularly when he's whispering in Obama's ear. And he's the administration's point man on the stimulus. Fraud has been the dog that hasn't barked. At the same time, concerns that excessive vigilance against fraud would slow the pace of spending didn't seem to have panned out either. There were a lot of dire predictions, but we found ways to make them not come true, says Ed Deceive, who oversees the stimulus out of Biden's office. It wasn't fate or kismet. It was the actions of lots and lots of people. I don't think you'll see many uses of the word kismet coming out of any press reports from any of them Republicans. It's just too fancy. It was the hard-driving, motormouth vice president who set the tone, promising state and local officials that all their stimulus-related questions would be answered within 24 hours, harassing cabinet secretaries to get their money out the door, pestering his staff to make sure nothing fishy slipped through the cracks, appearing at 56 Recovery Act events around the country. That's great. Bamer's down having a few drinks in Georgetown, and Motormouth, the vice president, is out there appearing at 56 Recovery Act events. Biden talked incessantly about government becoming more responsive, more accountable, more effective. He personally blocked 260 projects that flunked his smell test, including a $120,000 Army Corps of Engineers plan to print brochures about a lake cleanup. We said, hey man, no brochures, put it on a website, Biden recalled in an interview this summer. Stupid thing, but it saved the dollar amount. 
Another example of Biden's responsiveness. Last June, Republican Senator Pat Roberts of Kansas, no great friend of the Democrats, complained that stimulus money was about to fund a resurfacing of Highway 96 in Cherokee County just in time for more stimulus money to fund a nearby Superfund cleanup requiring heavy trucks that would rip up the road again. The next day, Biden called the Department of Transportation. I said, hey man, don't pave the road before the project is finished with the heavy trucks. Flip it. Roberts promptly thanked him on the Senate floor. Quote, the White House moved in an expeditious fashion, and quite frankly, I didn't expect they could move that fast. With unemployment still so high, the administration's successful oversight of the stimulus does not have an otherwise did-you-enjoy-the-play-Mrs.-Lincoln feel. The recovery remains tepid. So, the Recovery Act remains unpopular. Like TARP, which worked like gangbusters. It's unpopular because people want to hate it. They want to hate it because it's big and we're spending a lot of money and they think somehow we, as if I'm part of the government, are taking it out of their pockets. The White House says there would be 3 million more unemployed Americans without it and many independent economists agree. But the failed stimulus has become a Republican symbol of everything wrong with Obama's Washington. Even most Democrats, including the president himself, won't utter the word stimulus in public anymore. But so far, no indictments, no major scandals, no missed deadlines, no busted budgets. Hey, man, that's more than good enough for government work. Well, Dave, there are national foods and there are national foods. I know, for example, the hamburger was our national food until within the last decade it was taken over by the pizza. Yes, must be the pizza, but that's not our national food. That's the national food of only part of Italy, not even general. But they, they, it never was a national food there. It's our national food now. That for them, pizza was just like throwing a little tomato on some crust to see if the if the something else was done. But kimchi uh, yeah. shortage, a national crisis kimchi. in South Korea. Uh-huh. Freakish fall weather has resulted in a national kimchi crisis causing South Korean consumers to clutch their purses, hearts, and stomachs as they seek to deal with a shortage of the oblong-shaped cabbage used to make the ubiquitous spicy dish. Uh, The cabbage crop was ruined by bad rains. Cabbage heads have now gone up to $10 a head. It's, It's just extraordinary. Monday, the Seoul City government began a kimchi bailout program. This is awesome. I love it. In which okay. it is absorbing 30% of the cost of about 300,000 heads of cabbage that it has purchased from rural farmers. Now, here's the thing. Normally, they only eat their own cabbage. But depriving Koreans of their kimchi, uh, may say, is like forcing Italians to forego pasta or taking all the tea from China. Right? Okay. Or, or metaphors to that extent. Yes, to, go to on. that extent. Yeah. The round cabbage, internet users pointed out, was the only slightly cheaper here than the Chinese variety. So they have the long cabbage, which they love, the round cabbage, which they kind of, you know, despise and eat only if they have to, and then the Chinese variety, which they don't like at all. But it has caused a huge tumult, and the political careers may topple over. People are crying in the streets. They're hoarding the stuff. I can imagine this would happen if we suddenly ran out of French fries, you know? That's true. Freedom fries, darling. Oh, sorry, forgot about that. The Wall Street Journal tells us that Americans are increasingly skeptical of the benefits of free trade with 53% saying such trade agreements have hurt the U.S., up from 46% in 2007 and 32% in 1999, okay? The new skepticism is found even among wealthy professionals whose jobs are unlikely to be outsourced and whose industries rely on international growth. 
Among those making 70000 or more, half say such trade agreements have hurt the country, up from just 24% 11 years ago. Politicians are responding to the mood change, and now free trade agreements with South Korea and Colombia may not get congressional approval. One of the few bipartisan votes in the House of Representatives was a measure that will let the Obama administration put more pressure on China to allow its currency to rise. It has to. China has been sitting on the yuan in order to keep, you know, all of those soccer balls that are being laced by, you know, <laughs> laced together by the teeth of, 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 of political prisoners. They've got to keep that stuff cheap or we aren't going to buy it. We aren't even buying as much as we used to because we ain't got the dough. So here's what happens. The yuan goes up. Products from China get more expensive. Our, our goods become relatively less expensive, and it gives us some sort of an export edge. That is, if the corporations that are sitting on trillions of dollars of cash will invest in something that we can export. The change in opinion is probably a reaction to the struggling economy, and experts feel the public mood will lead to a slip backwards on efforts to create a more open global economy. Well, open global economy is all very well, but one of the problems with the free trade uh, agreements that have gone down, as we well know, is that we really don't ask the important questions as to why their goods are so cheap. It's because of cheap labor. It's because of slave labor. It's because of those export platformos where there is no one can organize, no one can complain. You know, it really isn't free trade. It's cheap trade we're talking about. And it's making, it's cheapening our relationship with these countries and it's cheapening the fiber of our own domestic economy. Every time Obama comes on the TV, which I watch Fox News all during the day, I switch a channel to the Hallmark channel to figure he's gone, then I switch it back. An arrest affidavit unsealed by federal prosecutors this week alleges that Cecilia Chang required scholarship students at St. John's University to take out the garbage, shovel snow, and cook food at her home in Queens, New York. Chang threatened the students and placed them in fear that if they refused to perform these personal services, they would lose their scholarships and be unable to attend St. John's, FBI Special Agent Kenneth Hosey said in the affidavit. At the time, she was a vice president and dean with the authority to award scholarships. In addition to requiring students to perform household chores, Chang uh, also asked students to conduct financial transactions and deliver cash to her at a casino. She was suspended from her job in January. Gee, I wonder why. Last month, she was indicted on charges that she stole more than a million dollars from the university, including $250,000 in funds that she allegedly diverted from a charitable foundation in Saudi Arabia. Oh, really? In a statement released last month, Queen's District Attorney Richard A. Brown said the alleged embezzlement involved personal use of university funds, including casino expenses, meals at restaurants, shopping trips at Victoria's Secret, and her son's law school tuition. That's a nice combo. I guess, I wonder, was she shopping at Victoria's Secret for special underwear for the casino or to visit her son at law school? I'll have to ask her. Dave, the British businessman who bought Segway recently. Oh, yes. Two-wheeled Segway personal mm -hmm. transporter died in an accident on one of his own vehicles. I know. It was the ironic moment the, you know, of the of the weekend, I guess. I mean, everybody sort of looked up from the paper and said, "Did you realize?" Police in West Yorkshire 
said that 62-year-old James Hesselden and a Segway were found in the River Wharf, W-H-A-R-F-E, near Boston Spa in Northern England. Now, first of all, besides just about him, West Yorkshire, River Wharf, Boston <laughs> Spa. Eh, I tell you, yeah. it still takes me It's always been England, you know. Yeah. So police said a member of the public had reported seeing a man fall over a 30-foot drop into the river. Hesselden bought control of the New Hampshire-based Segway company just in December. He made a fortune from his firm Hesco Bastion, which developed a system replacing sandbags to protect troops. Now, that is, that's really cool. And he made a fortune with this particular device, yes. which replaces sandbags. What a good idea. Like sandbags went out with the Egyptians. Yeah, right. And when, you know, they they're get, still, you know, still carrying them. Still using them. And the guy was, was very much into charity. I think he had a fairly good yeah. rep, you know, yeah. and he just went over a cliff on his Segway. Well, you know, it may have been, you know, all you have to do is just bend to the right and whew, you're gone. Hey, the end of another fine Radio Friage show. A lot of people have been responding to the fact that we tang out on a regular basis. They like this poetry from the tang period. It, it's resonating with our with our people, Dave. I, for some reason, those old, old centuries seem to, we all seem to think the same thing. And, and many of these poets are, are older men. Yes, and they're contemplating their their whole life. But they're know? lusty, and they're and they're, and oh, they're yeah. so observant, and they're so simple, and so rich. Who, who we got today? Uh, this is Dao Chen. Yes, Dao Chen uh, again, and right? he's uh, he's from you know I think didn't I say from like the four uh, f- four let's say four hundred early Tang er, early four uh, hundreds right? Okay, here he is. This is from a group of poems. I'll read several of these Dao Chen poems. When I was young and in my prime, if times were sad, I was happy on my own with brave plans that went beyond the sea. I spread my wings and dreamt of great flights. But the course of time has run me down and my zest for life has begun to wane. Enjoyment no longer makes me happy. Each and everything means more worry. My strength is beginning to peter out. I sense the change. One day's not like the last. The hurrying barge can't wait for a moment. It pulls me along and gives no rest. The road ahead, how much farther? I don't know where I will come to rest. The ancients begrudged a shadow's inch of time. When I think of this, it makes me shudder. Well, that makes me shudder. <laughs> well, let's just keep shuddering till we're back again tomorrow on Radio Free Oz. See you when it happens.